Hello and welcome to the Reorg Europe podcast, your weekly roundup of the most interesting trends and developments in performing credit, stressed and distressed, restructuring and post-reorg in the European and SEMIA markets. It's Tuesday, May the 17th. I'm Richard Woolley. And I'm Giulia Rusconi. Coming up this week, we have Nicola Orsani, who will discuss Belgian hygiene product company Ontex and the events that could move the price of their bonds up and down. And Shan Karashi talks about fee trends in English scheme of arrangements and restructuring plans. We're also going to hear from Beatrice Mavrolian, who will bring us news from the struggling primary market. But first, I checked in with Magnus Sherman for an update on the impact of sanctions related to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Hi Magnus, nice to see you again. Um, obviously, sanctions have been a, a big topic uh, since the invasion of Ukraine began, um, and you've been looking at one particular company this week in the context of that. Can you talk to us a little bit more? Yeah, this is uh, the Russian gold miner Petro Pavlovsk. Um, we've been covering them for some years now. Uh, they are sort of a typical uh, commodity-based um, high-yield bond issuer, and they had a uh, 2022 bond quoted above par before the Russian invasion of Ukraine in late February. Um, when that invasion happened, of course, there was a lot of nerves about how would uh, the following sanctions hit that company. Um, and the company was um, quickly out to say that its shareholders are not uh, impacted by sanctions, which is true. Uh, they haven't been sanctioned so far. Um, and that the company was generally excluded from this. Um, but um, then things changed on the 24th of March when the UK uh, sanctioned Gazprom Bank. And this is relevant for Petro Pavlovsk because although this company uh, has all its mining operations in Russia, they, they mine and pr- uh, process and then sell the, the gold in Russia, it is a UK-listed company. They're based in Mayfair here in London. Um, so this, would, this impacts them very uh, seriously. And um, in particular because they have, a, they have a term loan with Gazprom Bank, but also they have an offtake agreement where Gazprom Bank buys 100% of their gold. So suddenly they're not able to um, to sell to Gazprom Bank and they've had a lot of issues with uh, with trying to find um, new buyers. They just announced that they had um, been, uh, they, they had found three potential new buyers and applied for uh, export licenses. Um, so we still don't know who that, that is, but um, but that is uh, one of the one of the key points for this company. On top of that, of course, there's the debt, the Gazprom Bank term loan, um, that has been accelerated by Gazprom Bank and then sold on to a, a another uh, well now creditor. This creditor is a uh, another Russian uh, gold miner called UMMC, and talks are now ongoing with that company. And one of the options on the table here is a sale of all the operating subsidiaries in uh, in Russia. Um, we haven't heard that it could be to UMMC, but that is, of course, an option, especially given that this new this miner is is now a creditor of the company. They also have an RCF that uh, has has traded to an entity called Nordic LLC. We know nothing about this entity yet, but um, this is one that, uh, that people are following. Um, the company has these two uh, eurobonds outstanding, but uh, as far as we know, there are no bondholder groups at this point, just because there's a lot of uncertainty around this group, and a lot of the bonds may have traded into the hands of Russian uh, creditors, and therefore a lot of the Western firms wouldn't get involved. Okay, thanks very much. Moving now to the primary market. Beatrice, we have been hearing about a lot of deals currently in pre-marketing. Could you tell us more about this? 
So the only way to get primary deals across the line at the moment, considering the very volatile market conditions and the negative backdrop in terms of equity markets and, and economic news, has been to pre-market them. This is what happened with um, B2B distribution company Optigroup's loan. The deadline for investor commitments on that deal was today, but a significant amount, um, some investors say well over half of the books, was covered in pre-marketing. And pre-marketing has kind of changed. Before um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, before the current market volatility, um, it used to be shorter. It used it tended to be more like five days or something. And now it's it, it can last one or two weeks. Um, and also it seems to be broader in that inclu it includes often um, funds and investors that w were previously not included in pre-marketing. Um, debt, probably a loan to fund uh, Worldline's Terminal Solutions and Services Unit Ingenico sale to Apollo is in pre-marketing, um, we hear. Um, other deals um, currently in pre-marketing include a, a bond for a company in the transport sector, but some of these deals, they are only expected to actually come to, to wider syndication after the, the Queen's Jubilee celebration weekend, which ends on the 5th of June, so it's going to be a little bit, a little um, while before it happens. Is pre-marketing sufficient to ensure that a deal will go to wider syndication and be priced immediately? No, it's not always enough. Um, a 1.5 billion sterling deal for uh, gambling company 888's acquisition of William Hill's non-US business was in pre-marketing, but we think it was now put on the back burner a little bit by the leads in late April because of market conditions and, and one source said um, possibly because of um, UK gaming regulation that's uh, soon expected to come into force. Um, so yeah, JP Morgan was, was keen to offload the debt, he said, um, which is on its books, um, so it, it may come back soon, but for now it, it, it's on hold possibly. Uh, meanwhile, pre-marketing of the remaining debt to, uh, to fund CD&R's acquisition of Morrison's is thought to be on hold as well, while the company works on an update of its performance from uh, Q1 to the end of April, as well as an update on retailer McCall, which is, it is acquiring. And do you expect more primary issuances to come to market shortly? So I spoke to one one buy sider who said that he um, was in contact with one of the one of the banks, and uh, the bank told him th uh, that this bank has probably a fifteen to twenty percent market share, and told him it has three de deals on its books currently um, that it's keen to offload. And so based on that, he kind of assumes there must be at least ten to fifteen deals across all the big banks. Um, that are going to come to the primary market when it reopens. One of the important triggers for deals to come to the primary market will be um, stabilization in equity markets, which may happen soon, investors think, because the market seems a bit oversold. Um, and also um, uh, it's important for kind of uh, the US 10-year Treasury note yield to, to come back down. It was above, um, just above 3% early last week. Um, and tends to kind of decline shortly after rising up, rising above that level. So, um, so it's and it's now starting to go downwards. So maybe, maybe things will will improve shortly. Thanks a lot, Beatrice, for sharing the the update on the primary market. Thank you. Earlier, I spoke to our head of legal restructuring, innovation, and initiatives, Shankareshi about his recent analysis of trends in the use of fees in English law schemes of arrangement and restructuring plans. So typically we've got three classes of fees. Your first are your lockup or your consent fees. Now these are traditionally offered to all creditors in a class in consideration for them agreeing to vote in favour of a scheme or a plan by an agreed date. 
We then have the working fees. Now these are distinct from advisor fees, which are payable to legal or financial advisors. These working fees are generally payable to certain creditors, usually an ad hoc group, uh, in return for disbursements made in time spent by that creditor group in negotiating the restructuring. These tend to be payable regardless of whether the restructuring is sanctioned. Finally, we have backstop or underwriting fees, and these are paid to certain lenders in consideration for their commitment to providing a backstopping service for the provision of new, new money. And usually, again, it's the members of an ad hoc group who provide the service. Now, before we look at the trends of these three types of fees, it's important to notice that we haven't seen to date any scheme or plan where a certain category of fee proposed has been held by the court to be unfair. So with that in mind, let's have a look at the trends we saw in 2018 to 2020. We essentially saw the level of working fees payable to ad hoc credit creditor groups increase exponentially. Judges at the time began to raise concerns that these fees could be seen as a disguised consideration for the recipient's agreement to vote in favour of the scheme. And how have things developed since 2020? Well, in short, what we've seen is where working fees are featured, they've been significantly less in quantum. For example, Codere, KCA, Dirtag, Noble and Lecter, which were all pre-2020, featured working fees of around 1, 2 or even 3.6%, whereas more recent schemes, such as PGS and Hare Real Estate, featured working fees of just 0.39% and 0.3% respectively. At the same time, whilst we've seen working fees decrease, we've seen backstop or underwriting fees increase. Pre-2020, the amount charged for this service was 0.5% or 2.5%, whereas more recent schemes, such as Petrodiamonds and Loan Play, have featured fees of 5% and 4% respectively. So what our data shows is that there's been a severe reduction in the quantum and occurrence of working fees. However, at the same time, it appears that backstop or underwriting fees have increased proportionately. It is quite typical for the members of an ad hoc group or committee who would receive working fees to be the same entities that would in fact provide those backstop services. It could therefore be argued that market practice has shifted towards using the backstop fee path as a way to extract further value out of a scheme company for the benefits of creditors, rather than charging working fees. Now, what have we seen with respect to restructuring plans? Well, English law schemes and restructuring plans are very similar in respect, with practitioners relying on the same case law when pursuing either and following the same framework. However, we've seen a divergence in the use of fees in each of the tools. In the eight plans that we've seen sanctioned, there's only been one that featured a consent fee, that was EDF and MAN, and one which had a backstop fee, Pizza Express. Why has this divergence began to emerge? Well, it could be because of the additional concerns present when cross-class cramdown is being used in restructuring plans. The possible issue there is whether it could be argued by a dissenting creditor who is being crammed down that cross-class cramdown jurisdiction is only being engaged because the in-the-money creditors had been incentivised to lock up by the consent fee. However, given the small quantum of the consent fee that tends to be on offer, this appears to be quite a difficult argument. I think we'll see a gradual increase in consent fees and restructuring plans. And with respect to schemes, at the same time, I think we will see a continued use of backstop or underwriting fees. Belgian hygiene product company Ontex is facing unprecedented inflationary pressure. Its 580 million senior unsecured notes due 2026 are trading in the mid-80s today and are yielding about 7.5%. The notes rose about 5 points recently on the back of an announcement that the group may combine with Atindas, which is owned by private equity fund American Industrial Partners. Nikhil, what's your view on the price of the notes? 
Well, in our view, the bonds appear attractive on a relative value basis when compared to WEPA's senior secured notes due 2027, which also yielding about 7%. Ontex's bonds do lack security, but the business appears to have relatively stronger fundamentals, and we are more optimistic regarding its deleveraging trajectory. Ontex also has a larger and more diversified business. It has slightly better margins, better cash generation, and lower net leverage, which did increase to 5.7 times as of March 31st, from 4.2 times at the end of last year. What do you see as potential triggers that could impact the price of the notes going forward? Well, there are a few positive triggers and negative triggers. Firstly, on the positive side, a change of control could occur if AIP were to acquire 50% or more of the voting rights, which could lead to the notes being taken out at 101. Also, deleveraging could accelerate if management follows through on its plans to dispose of the emerging markets business by 2023, which we estimate could be worth between 250 to 300 million euros. Though this is subject to execution risk and the proceeds could be reduced by fees and any debt held at the EM business. On the negative side, there's the risk that the bonds prices could be negatively impacted in the coming quarters by worse than expected earnings as inflation kicks in. We expect the combination of raw material inflation and poor pass-through ability to hit on-tex margins hard in the coming quarter and somewhat easing over the balance of this year as some of the costs are passed through. In our cash flow model, under the base case, we see them burning cash of around 69 million and this increases net leverage to around 6.6 times by the end of this year. However, we do note that the company has a lot of liquidity and so we don't see any any real hard near-term triggers. You said that leverage could go down if management sells the emerging market business. What is the plan or rationale behind this divestment? And what do you expect the company's financials to look like in the future? Well, the, the rationale is that Ontex wants to focus on Europe, where it's a leading private label player in the baby care, adult incontinence and feminine care products markets. It also wants to continue its expansion in North America and management expects to divest its emerging markets business by 2023. And also during its recent earnings call, management did say that it's received several non-binding offers and it was making good progress in that regard. So is this sale good or bad for Ontex? We think that focusing on the higher margin markets of Europe and North America has to be a good change by management who also indicated that the proceeds could be used for de- for deleveraging. Also, cash flow visibility should improve as the company would be less exposed to emerging markets and it should benefit from lower foreign currency exposure too, which has also led to material negative impacts in recent periods. In line with management estimates, we think diver- the divestment could allow Ontex to materially improve its cost base and margins. We also forecast that it could lead to a decrease in net leverage to below two times by 2025. Thanks a lot, Nikhil, for joining us today. As a reminder, the analysis on Ontex was published on the Reorg's web- website just yesterday. On Wednesday, Reorg's Europe managing editor Julie Mecom will be joining Wise Funding's Edward Altman and Vladimir Kartasev of Extra Consulting for a webinar discussion of current drivers in the credit cycle, including the impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and post-pandemic inflation concerns, as well as reviewing trends in the high-yield and private debt markets and exploring new ways to identify resilient firms amid the current uncertainty. That's Is the Credit Cycle Turning? A webinar by Wise Funding, May the 18th at 4pm BST. As always, more information on all of the situations discussed in this podcast is available on our website, reorg.com. 
We hope you can join us next Tuesday for another Reorg podcast. But until then, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.